Chapter Thirteen of the House of a Thousand Candles by Meredith Nicholson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A pair of eavesdroppers. When I came down after dressing for dinner, Bates called my attention to a belated mail. I pounced eagerly upon a letter in Lawrence Donovan's well-known hand, bearing to my surprise an American stamp and postmarked New Orleans. It was dated, however, at Veracruz, Mexico, December 15th, 1901. Dear old man, I've had a merry time since I saw you in New York. Couldn't get away for a European port as I hoped when I left you, as the authorities seemed to be taking my case seriously, and I was lucky to get off as a deckhand on a southbound boat. I expected to get a slice of English prodigal veal at Christmas, but as things stand now I'm grateful to be loose even in this godforsaken hole. The British bulldog is eager to insert its teeth in my trousers, and I was flattered to see my picture bulletined in a conspicuous place the day I struck Veracruz. You see, they're badgering the government at home because I'm not apprehended, and they've got to catch and hang me to show that they've really got their hands on the Irish situation. I'm not afraid of the greasers. No people who gorge themselves with bananas and red peppers can be dangerous. But the British consul here has a bad eye, and even as I write, I am dimly conscious that a sleek person who's ostensibly engaged in literary work at the next table is really killing time while he waits for me to finish this screed. No doubt you're peacefully settled on your ancestral estate with only a few months, and a little patience between you and your grandfather's shear. You always were a lucky brute. People die just to leave you money, whereas I'll have to die to get out of jail." I hope to land under the stars and stripes within a few days, either across country through El Paso or via New Orleans, preferably the former, as a man's social position is rated high in Texas in proportion to the amount of reward that's out for him. They'd probably give me the freedom of the state if they knew my crimes had been the subject of debate in the House of Commons. But the man across the table is casually looking over here for a glimpse of my signature, so I must give him a good one just for fun. With best wishes always, faithfully yours, George Washington Smith. P.S. I shan't mail this here, but give it to a red-haired Irishman on a steamer that sails north tonight. Pleasant, I must say, this eternal dodging. Wish I could share your rural paradise for the length of a pipe and a bottle. Have forgotten whether you said Indian Territory or Indiana, but will take chances on the latter as more remotely suggesting the Aborigines. Bates gave me my coffee in the library as I wished to settle down to an evening of reflection without delay. Larry's report of himself was not reassuring. I knew that if he had any idea of trying to reach me, he would not mention it in a letter which might fall into the hands of the authorities, and the hope that he might join me grew. I was not, perhaps, entitled to a companion at Glenarm under the terms of my exile, but as a matter of protection in the existing condition of affairs, there could be no legal or moral reason why I should not defend myself against my foes, and Larry was an ally worth having. In all my hours of questioning and anxiety at Glenarm, I never doubted the amiable intentions of my grandfather. His device for compelling my residence at his absurd house was in keeping with his character, and it was all equitable enough. But his dead hand had no control over the strange issue, and I felt justified in interpreting the will in the light of my experiences. I certainly did not intend to appeal to the local police authorities, at least not until the animus of the attack on me was determined. My neighbor, the chaplain, had inadvertently given me a bit of important news, and my mind kept reverting to the fact that Morgan was reporting his injury to the executor of my grandfather's estate in New York. Everything else that had happened was tame and unimportant compared with this. Why had John Marshall Glenarm made Arthur Pickering the executor of his estate? 
He knew that I detested him, that Pickering's noble aims and high ambitions had been praised by my family until his very name sickened me, and yet my own grandfather had thought it wise to entrust his fortune and my future to the man of all men who was most repugnant to me. I rose and paced the floor in anger. Instead of accepting Pickering's word for it that the will was all straight, I should have employed counsel and taken legal advice before suffering myself to be rushed away into a part of the world I had never visited before, and cooped up in a dreary house under the eye of a sombre scoundrel who might poison me any day, if he did not prefer to shoot me in my sleep. My rage must fasten upon someone, and Bates was the nearest target for it. I went to the kitchen, where he usually spends his evenings to vent my feelings upon him, only to find him gone. I climbed to his room and found it empty. Very likely he was off condoling with his friend and fellow conspirator, the caretaker, and I fumed with rage and disappointment. I was thoroughly tired, as tired as on days when I had beaten my way through tropical jungles without food or water. But I wished, in my impotent anger against I knew not what agencies, to punish myself, to induce an utter weariness that would drag me exhausted to bed. The snow in the highway was well beaten down, and I swung off country ward past St. Agatha's. A grey mist hung over the fields in whirling clouds, breaking away occasionally and showing the throbbing winter stars. The walk, and my interest in the alternation of star-lighted and mist-wrapped landscape won me to a better state of mind, and after tramping a couple of miles I set out for home. Several times on my tramp I had caught myself whistling the air of a majestic old hymn, and smiled remembering my young friend Olivia and her playing in the chapel. She was an amusing child. The thought of her further lifted my spirit, and I turned into the school park as I passed the outer gate with a half-recognized wish to pass near the barracks where she spent her days. At the school gate the lamps of a carriage suddenly blurred in the mist. Carriages were not common in this region, and I was not surprised to find that this was the familiar village hack that met trains day and night at Glenarm Station. Some parent, I conjectured, paying a visit to St. Agatha's, Perhaps the father of Miss Olivia Gladys Armstrong had come to carry her home for a stricter discipline than Sister Teresa's school afforded. The driver sat asleep on his box, and I passed him and went on into the grounds. A whim seized me to visit the crypt of the chapel and examine the opening of the tunnel. As I passed the little group of school buildings, a man came hurriedly from one of them and turned toward the chapel. I first thought it was Stoddard but I could not make him out in the mist, and I waited for him to put twenty paces between us before I followed along the path that led from the school to the chapel. He strode into the chapel porch with an air of assurance, and I heard him address someone who had been waiting. The mist was now so heavy that I could not see my hand before my face, and I stole forward until I could hear the voices of the two men distinctly. Bates! Yes, sir. I heard feet scraping on the stone floor of the porch. "'This is a devil of a place to talk in, but it's the best we can do. "'Did the young man know I sent for you?' "'No, sir. He was quite busy with his books and papers.' Huh, "'We can never be sure of him.' "'I suppose that is correct, sir.' "'Well, you and Morgan are a fine pair, I must say. "'I thought he had some sense, and that you'd see to it that he didn't make a mess of this thing. "'He's in bed now with a hole in his arm, and you've got to go on alone.' "'I'll do my best, Mr. Pickering.' "'Don't call me by name, you idiot! "'We're not advertising our business from the housetops!' "'Certainly not,' replied Bates humbly. "'The blood was roaring through my head, "'and my hands were clenched as I stood there listening to this colloquy. 
Pickering's voice was, and is, unmistakable. There was always a purring softness in it. He used to remind me at school of a sleek, complacent cat, and I hate cats with particular loathing. "'Is Morgan lying or not when he says he shot himself accidentally?' demanded Pickering petulantly. "'I only know what I heard from the gardener here at the school. You'll understand, I hope, that I can't be seen going to Morgan's house.' "'Of course not. But he says you haven't played fair with him, that you even attacked him a few days after Glenarm came.' "'Yes, and he hit me over the head with a club. It was his indiscretion, sir.' He wanted to go through the library in broad daylight, and it wasn't any use anyhow. There's nothing there. But I don't like the looks of this shooting. Morgan's sick and out of his head, but a fellow like Morgan isn't likely to shoot himself accidentally, and now that it's done the work's stopped and the time is running on. What do you think Glenarm suspects? I can't tell, sir, but mighty little I should say. The shot through the window the first night he was here seemed to shake him a trifle, but he's quite settled down now, I should say, sir. He probably doesn't spend much time on this side of the fence. Doesn't haunt the chapel, I fancy. Lord knows, sir, I hardly suspect the young gentleman of being a praying man. You haven't seen him prowling about analyzing the architecture? Not a bit of it, sir. He hasn't, I should say, what his revered grandfather called the analytical mind. Hearing yourself discussed in this frank fashion by your own servant is, I suppose, a wholesome thing for the spirit. The man who stands behind your chair may acquire, in time, some special knowledge of your mental processes by a diligent study of the back of your head. But I was not half so angry with these conspirators as with myself, for ever having entertained a single generous thought toward Bates. It was, however, consoling to know that Morgan was lying to Pickering, and that my own exploits in the house were unknown to the executor. Pickering stamped his feet upon the paved porch in a way that I remembered of old. It marked a conclusion, and preluded serious statements. "'Now, Bates,' he said, with a ring of authority and speaking in a louder key than he had yet used, "'it's your duty, under all the circumstances, to help discover the hidden assets of the estate. We've got to pluck the mystery from that architectural monster over there,' and the time for doing it is short enough. Mr. Glenarm was a rich man. To my own knowledge, he had a couple of millions, and he couldn't have spent it all on that house. He reduced his bank account to a few thousand dollars and swept out his safety vault boxes with a broom before his last trip into Vermont. He didn't die with the stuff in his clothes, did he? Lord bless me, no, sir. There was little enough cash to bury him with you out of the country and me alone with him. He was a crank, and I suppose he got a lot of satisfaction out of concealing his money. But this hunt for it isn't funny. I supposed, of course, we'd dig it up before Glenarm got here, or I shouldn't have been in such a hurry to send for him. But it's over there somewhere, or in the grounds. There must be a plan of the house that would help. I'll give you a thousand dollars the day you wire me you've found any sort of clue. Thank you, sir. I don't want thanks. I want the money, or securities, or whatever it is. I've got to go back to my car now, and you'd better skip home. You needn't tell your young master that I've been here. I was trying hard to believe, as I stood there with clenched hands outside the chapel porch, that Arthur Pickering's name was written in the list of directors of one of the greatest trust companies in America, and that he belonged to the most exclusive clubs in New York. I'd run out for a walk with only an Inverness over my dinner jacket, 
and I was thoroughly chilled by the cold mist. I was experiencing, too, an inner cold as I reflected upon the greed and perfidy of man. "'Keep an eye on Morgan,' said Pickering. "'Certainly, sir.' "'And be careful what you write or wire.' "'I'll mind those points, sir, but I'd suggest, if you please, sir—' "'Will!' demanded Pickering impatiently. "'That you should call at the house. It would look rather strange to the young gentleman if you'd come here and not see him.' "'I haven't the slightest errand with him, and besides I haven't time. If he learns that I've been here you may say that my business was with Sister Teresa, and that I regretted very much not having an opportunity to call on him.' The irony of this was not lost on Bates, who chuckled softly. He came out into the open and turned away toward the Glenarm Gate. Pickering passed me, so near that I might have put out my hand and touched him, and in a moment I heard the carriage drive off rapidly toward the village. I heard Bates running home over the snow, and listened to the clatter of the village hack as it bore Pickering back to Annandale. Then out of the depths of the chapel porch, out of the depths of time and space, it seemed, so dazed I stood, Someone came swiftly toward me. Someone, light of foot, like a woman, ran down the walk a little way into the fog and paused. An exclamation broke from me. "'Eavesdroppers for two. It was the voice of Olivia. "'I'd take pretty good care of myself if I were you, Squire Glenarm. Good night.' "'Good-bye,' I faltered as she sped away into the mist toward the school. End of chapter 13